Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, March 25th. We begin with a look at the ongoing war in Ukraine. We speak with a professor of European, Russian and Eurasian studies on the significance of the NATO and G7 conference this week in Brussels and discuss what Russia's next move could be in the invasion. Next, we head stateside for our weekly update on the issues making headlines in the U.S. Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, brings us the latest on the U.S. response to the war in Ukraine and details on rising COVID-19 cases in the country due to the new BA2 variant. How flexible is your company? We hear how a Calgary-based tech firm has been experimenting with an alternative work week for its staff. We get details on how it works and what, if any, impact the new setup has had on productivity. And finally, the Oscars will be handed out on Sunday, and Sandra Bullock hits theaters with a new action comedy called The Lost City. We catch up with Brett McGarry from The Couch Potatoes for his best bets from TV to movies, just in time for the weekend. World leaders need to take a strong stance against the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but what measures can they take, and and what comes next? in this invasion. With Insight, we are joined by Jeff Sahadeo, Associate Professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Professor. Good morning. All eyes were on Brussels, uh, Professor, and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau met with his Western and European counterparts. What is on the table now following those meetings, and, and how can these countries effectively stand up to Russia? Well, I think already that we have done a lot in terms of more severe sanctions than we've seen against Russia at any other point and really against any other modern industrialized country. Uh, I think the most important thing is to keep the supply of weapons going. Now, that's what uh, Zelensky wants. He put in a uh, request for 500 Stinger and 500 Javelin missiles every day, uh, which goes to show the intensity of the fighting in Ukraine. And I think keeping uh, the Ukrainian army supplied is going to be the main thing that we can do right now. Uh, We keep looking towards trying to widen the circle of people that we're sanctioning in order to put pressure on Putin's regime. That's not likely to have short-term effects, but uh, it's something that hopefully the long-term will work out. For now, though, I think focusing on the Ukrainian fighting capacity will be critical. When you say long-term, Professor, and we talk about the sanctions and going after these oligarchs, is it a, is it a case of weeks or months? Or how long would it take to see these sanctions and, and that sort of a move have an effect? I, I think it's a case of, of months, uh, and we're never quite sure how effective sanctions are going to be. I mean, the, the most effective sanctions uh, that we've had were against South Africa and the apartheid regime, and that that took a period of years to to work through. Uh, it's a way to put pressure on the regime, and often has indirect effects of dissatisfaction with Putin climbing among those people who are the most likely to be effective in in opposing him and eventually changing the regime. So it has to infiltrate into not just the oligarchs who aren't really as politically strong as it might be economically strong, but into the um, average population and then into people like the, the sort of security and defense officials that are around. But sanctions can be a double-edged sword. And certainly at first, um, the sanctions are likely to cause a lot of anger at the West also for making for their responsibility and, and having prices rise 
And of course, Putin's propaganda machine is going to be playing that narrative as well. Let's uh, let's focus, uh, Professor Sahedo, about uh, you know NATO in the sense that NATO has you know been a factor and you know member countries. I believe there's what thirty members in NATO. Uh, perhaps I, I might have that number wrong, but nevertheless, we we know NATO. We we're familiar with it, but. It has now moved to the forefront. It is now in almost everyday conversation. And could it be kind of a backfire on the part of Putin that this is just really, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, strengthened NATO and has brought NATO together, and it, it, it's really been unifying to these countries? Oh, I think certainly um, we can look at a number of miscalculations that Putin has made. Um, he believed that the invasion of Ukraine, first of all, that it would be easy. Mm-hmm that he would conquer Kiev in a matter of days, and of course he's not close to that objective yet. But also one of the reasons he thought that it would be easy to not only capture Ukraine but to hold it was that uh, NATO countries would be divided, and and you've seen a loss of leadership by the United States over the, the Trump years, and the fact that Germany and France are dependent on Russian oil and gas, um, when Germany, uh, when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, the Western countries really kind of let them off the hook for that. So I would, I would say yes, that NATO is certainly more unified. Um, there are still slight divisions between the countries in the east, um, of the, were once occupied by the Soviet Union, uh, who want a bit more aggressive posturing and perhaps even a no-fly zone in those in the west. Mm-hmm. But overall, what you have seen is a mobilization of strengths uh, by all these all these Western countries and just a horror of the civilian casualties and the way the Russian army is behaving, and I think that'll be an enduring legacy of this uh, conflict. You know what? What? What do you believe? And again, this is this is your opinion. This is looking at you know in, with your extensive background. Um, what do you think went wrong for the Russians and this invasion and their miscalculation? Because on paper, with you know what was it initially? Yeah, there were there were several things I think that went wrong. I, First of all, Putin had not, I think, really planned. First of all, if there was going to be an operation at all, because I think he hoped if he postured, put these hundreds of thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border, that Ukraine would eventually give in. Uh, And then when that didn't happen, uh, he had not properly informed the uh, commanders of what the operations were going to be. Uh, he, I think he believed his own press, and I think a lot of Western countries believed the press that the Russian army, which had performed so well in, in Syria and in uh, Crimea, mm-hmm. uh, was technologically capable of making a very quick advance and getting to Kiev. Uh, I think also... The fact that he thought the Ukrainian people would, the Russia, especially the ethnic Russians in Ukraine, which are a significant portion of the population, would welcome him uh, and welcome Russian forces in. Uh, one of the things that I think we'll, we'll find out about eventually after this is over is once COVID hit, Putin really narrowed the circle of advisors around him. And also as he started to become more and more authoritarian, he doesn't like to hear advice that, that doesn't fit what he wants to do. And so he's mm. not listen to advisors who are giving him more critical appraisals of what's going on. And this narrow circle of influence and, and um, information he was getting during COVID and his desire to make this a legacy project, his anger that he hasn't been able to neutralize Ukraine, I think clouded his thinking and has led to a lot of these issues in Ukraine right now. I know, you know, maybe you do have a crystal ball, Jeff. I'm not too sure, but, I, I, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. But, you know, what what comes next? What 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 could we see unfolding? And 
How could we see an end to this conflict? Yeah, nobody has a crystal ball for sure. And uh, I, I know that's it, it's quite traumatic for a lot of uh Canadians especially, because I mean, for those of us of a certain age, we do remember the Cold War and the, the threat of nuclear weapons, but for younger people, they don't. Um, I think what's most likely to happen now is a period of, of continued conflict. I mean, both sides right now can see gains. Russia's making some gains in the south. Ukraine is pushing back a little bit in the north. Um, and so until one side or the other really feels like it's exhausted itself, uh, you can't really see that you're going to come to some kind of negotiation. So I think we're going to see a period of weeks and perhaps even a period of months uh, of continued fighting uh, until the sides basically look and see that they, they can't supply themselves anymore. And that's why it's really critical for the Western countries to continue to supply Ukraine. But the problem for this this conflict is Putin um, has staked his, his power on this conflict. So it's hard to know how Putin survives. So we could see the potentially um, some kind of regime change in Russia, whether that be people in the uh, his inner circle, perhaps overthrowing him, or Putin just somehow finding an excuse to, to resign. Um, I think that's, that's sort of a scenario that we might see. I mean, it's, it's maybe not the most likely, but I think it's probably more likely than the, the doomsday scenario, which is that Russia would actually start to use chemical uh, weapons or tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, which we can't exclude. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's possible, given how seriously Russia um, takes its invasion of Ukraine and, and doesn't want to lose face, both with its own population and the community. So um, it, it's grim, but wars do end. And I, I think the most likely um, event is the, the leaders will have to realize that painful compromises will have to be taken and, and, uh, will have some kind of, some kind of settlement that nobody will be happy with, but at least will end the violence. Very precarious time, a very tumultuous time. Thank you, uh, for spending time with us, Jeff. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. That is Professor Jeff Sahedo, Associate Professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. Could Ukraine Join the G20 if and when Russia is expelled with insight into the meeting of world leaders in Europe and news from our neighbors south of the borders, uh, south of the border, rather. We're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning and happy Friday to you, Reggie. Good morning. So NATO leaders uh, did meet yesterday to discuss the crisis in Ukraine. What do we know about yesterday's summit, Reggie? Well, I mean, look, it was an extraordinary summit. It was an emergency summit, uh, and it again proved that NATO is not going to allow uh, any kind of wedge to be driven between any of its nation members uh, over the situation uh, in Ukraine. All of them stood alongside each other uh, to continue to put pressure on the Kremlin uh, to end its war uh, in Ukraine. All of them continue uh, to stand by each other in propping up Ukraine when it comes to military aid and support, along with logistical support, uh, along with a, a kind of collective fear over over how to move forward if Russia ultimately decides to escalate this war uh, with the use of of chemical or biological uh, or even nuclear weapons. And and you know what? President Biden said it with that that quote, that NATO has never been more united. Obviously, this crisis has unified NATO, and it could be an unintended consequence that uh, Vladimir Putin Putin was uh, not looking, uh, looking into or expecting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this has been said from the beginning uh, that the Kremlin likely didn't think that NATO really had the guts to go forward with this kind of um, of, of kind of sanction platter that really has been dished out over the last month. I mean, look, President Putin and Russia itself is no stranger to sanctions. They have been sanctioned many, many times over the last several years, up to and including uh, the annexation uh, of Crimea. But the, the extent that these sanctions have reached not only the president himself, but the oligarchs throughout Russia and are now having having an exact impact on the average Russian person because of Russia's inability to access Western financial markets. Uh, this is is likely not what um, what the Kremlin was expecting. It's also not what uh, what allied nations of, of Russia were expecting either. China has come out to say that, you know, there shouldn't be nations against nations. These sanctions uh, are unwelcomed and unnecessary, again, showing that there are still friends of Moscow. It is just a dwindling number. It's interesting also, the, the line in the sand uh, that had been drawn by NATO countries and uh, President Biden in the U.S. was that the, they would not enforce a no-fly zone. And then we're hearing from President Biden talking about, you know, the impact of chemical weapons if used by the Russians and saying that the action will be taken. Was there any detail as to what action the U.S. and or its NATO partners would take if the Russian invaders use chemical weapons? So, look, they're, they're, they're providing uh, uh, equipment uh, kind of heavy artillery style equipment that could defend against uh, wep- uh, uh, chemical or biological weapons uh, that are used. They're not really going into detail about what next steps would be, uh, trying to leave that as, you know, intelligence sources or potentially not to put anything out in the open that would create the kind of escalation that could cause uh, Moscow to try and test NATO in any way. Uh, we have simply heard over and over from NATO leaders, including from the NATO Secretary General, that if this war spills out into uh, a NATO country, that the territory will be defended from all member nations who are obligated to protect uh, NATO. So there again, there's a concern here that Russia is going to escalate things, but NATO says that they are prepared to be able to defend themselves and Ukraine. Well, we are following this this war and this conflict here in Canada. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, being based in Washington, Reggie, what, what are the thoughts and the sentiments? What are you hearing from the American people, you know, regarding this conflict? I mean, look, there's support. There's broad support for how the president uh, and for how the administration is conducting uh, the humanitarian support and the military support for Ukraine. We've heard Republicans, while making comments that things should have acted quicker, that there should have been reactive and not proactive, um, uh, rather proactive and not reactive sanctions put in place. For the most part, uh, the country is in line with doing what it can to provide support to uh, Ukraine. We even had Republicans uh, push for more money in terms of providing military support into Ukraine. Uh, this is also something that's led to an increase in, um, you know, job popularity for President Biden ever since he spent 15 minutes during his State of the Union to address foreign policy and the crisis uh, in Ukraine. So there, again, broad support for how the United States is acting as a leader in this kind of Western pushback against Russian aggression. Tomorrow will also be uh, an important moment for Americans to watch. The president is expected to deliver a quote unquote major address uh, on the, the, the current situation uh, in Ukraine. White House hasn't released any details about it, so it could be more sanctions. It could be, uh, you know, anything linked to potential military aid. This will come as the president visits with the Polish president on Saturday. Another interesting aspect that that I've been watching, and I think a lot of Canadians might not exactly understand, it's fairly in-depth as well, is the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Tell us about the significance of this and how long something like this process goes on. 
So, look, this is a big deal for uh, for President Biden. And really, it's a historic moment in the United States. Judge Ketanji J- uh, Brown Jackson, uh, if and when approved uh, and confirmed uh, early in April, she is going to become the first black woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, there are several women on the court right now. Uh, the first woman uh, coming, you know, decades ago. So that that path was was uh, that that trail was blazed already. But she will mark the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. This was a, um, a, a campaign promise that was made by then candidate uh, Joe Biden. Uh, it has been criticized by Republicans as, you know, trying to fill a quote unquote quota uh, and, and calling this, you know, uh, a nomination that's linked to the far left progressive movement in the Democratic Party. But ultimately, uh, Joe Biden has the support of the Democratic Party and of the American Bar Association for the record of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, despite the fact Republicans have really been pushing back on this nomination. Reggie, here in in Canada, it's interesting because weeks ago we were talking a lot about COVID-19 and the pandemic that has, uh, you know, hushed a bit that talk. Obviously a lot going on in the world, but here in Canada and here in Calgary, the wastewater, when they're monitoring it, we're seeing increased number of cases. We're starting to see cases start to creep up of the new BA2 variant. Where uh, are you at in the U.S. when it comes to COVID-19 in the battle? So there's been a steady downfall uh, in ter- in terms of cases over the last several months. I mean, we're we're at numbers now that that really haven't been seen um, since you know the the middle part uh, of last year between May and June. There is concern, obviously, about the new variant around there, especially because uh, the president's budget uh, that that was uh, that is going forward doesn't contain any new money for any kind of uh, ability to deal with any rise in cases or potential new surge or uh, the ability to plan for the next pandemic. So there is some concern here uh, and. And there's also concern uh, about the fact that, you know, mandates have really just all but disappeared, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in some of the hardest hit areas like New York and in Los Angeles. But ultimately, uh, given the fact that, you know, we're seeing cases go up, there is a fear across the United States uh, that things could get worse here, uh, you know, bubbling up already in in certain parts of the U.S. Midwest. But ultimately, um, the president and the White House COVID team say that the United States is in a position to be able to handle any kind of surge. Whatever that surge might be, though, you know, it's still, you know, you have to wait and see when it gets here as to whether they're prepared enough. Busy time, Reggie. You covered a lot of ground for us. Thank you so much and have a great weekend. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. There's been lots of talk lately about hybrid working. Tech company Avanade has offices in Calgary and across the country and have just wrapped up an experimental alternative workweek pilot program. Joining us to talk about what they've done differently is Andrea Richardson, Canada HR business lead for Avanade. Good morning to you, Andrea. Hello, how are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. So tell us about your company's alternative workweek pilot program. How did this idea come to be? Sure, for sure. So, you know, work-life balance had been really an important part of our culture, you know, even before COVID, but it was really at risk, especially when COVID uh, sort of came. So working days were getting longer, calendars really felt out of control. And, you know, with all the lockdowns that were happening and sort of forced work from home, you know, balancing work and personal life had really become hard for, you know, our employees and for employees everywhere. Um, So we wanted to push the boundaries of flexible working and let our participants work their standard hours in fewer actual work days in a way that would work best for them. So the concept was, you know, simple, forward thinking. Participants created their own flexible schedule to accommodate their work and private life so Mm -hmm. they could redistribute their 40 hours. 
five-day work week to suit their needs. So. so let's talk about, you know, as far as, you know, employees taking advantage of this. Was this company-wide or could, you know, a certain employee sign up for it? How, how was participation? Yeah, so we started with a pilot program. So we, we, had, a, we had an initial pilot program that was global. So we had about 200 people uh, participate in that. And then in um, June of 2021, we did a second pilot. And Canada was one of the countries chosen to, to be a participant in that pilot. So we were able to offer this to Canadians across the country. And we saw about an 11% participation rate in the program. And as far as uh, I'm looking through some of the notes here, it's interesting to me because I think that it's not a one-size-fits-all. An alternative work week, the schedule can vary widely depending on, uh, you know, an employee's needs and the company's, you know, I guess, framework. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, people had the option of working um, a four-day work week, 10 hours a day, get a day off any day of the week. They could work, um, you know, 4.5 days a week um, and take an afternoon off a week. They could take, you know, they could work nine days and 10 and then take a a day off every other week. Whatever really worked for them was what we were encouraging people to do. Okay, so it could look different for each employee. uh, But, you know, coming back to the pilot project, what what, what were your greatest takeaways? What what did you find? So... um, so, you know, we had, so like from a results perspective, you know, there was a lot of, you know, we're a consulting company. So, you know, we make money by, you know, by our employees, you know, being billable with our clients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really wanted to make sure that, um, you know, that wasn't affecting our clients, wasn't affecting you know, our ability to be chargeable, all that kind of stuff. So what we found um, with the program is that, in fact, it didn't um, affect people's chargeability. So people that so we had probably about forty five percent of the pilot what were sort of chargeable, um, you know, consulting employees, and um, there was no difference in their chargeability. Um, we did see um, we had a control group, so people that we invited but didn't participate, and we did see that people that were participating in the program had lower attrition. Um, they seemed to be working more efficiently. Um, so those were some of the results that came out of it. Um, yeah, so we were pretty happy with, with, with what we saw. And so since then, we've now, it's now a program. So we don't just call it a pilot anymore. Everybody has access to the program. Very interesting. And I know that, you know, not, well, nobody has every answer coming out of the pandemic. This is a step in the right direction. And I think things will never quite be the same. So we appreciate your insight and sharing with us what was a pilot and is now an, an up and running program. Thanks so much, Andrea. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Andrea Richardson, Canada HR Business Lead for Avanade. And you can find out more about what they do online at avanade.com. It's our weekly catch-up with Brett McGarry of The Couch Potatoes, bringing us the latest and greatest in uh, movies, in the theaters, that is, streaming, TV, all things entertainment. Good morning and happy Friday to you, Brett. Hello there. How are you? Good, good. You know, this is a big weekend. We'll get to the Oscars in a minute because... I I wonder if this is going to be a return to normalcy for the Oscars. We'll get that answer. But first, uh, let's go to the movies. And uh, one of my favorites, and I got a story to go along with it as well, Sandra Bullock. She's got a new one out. Yeah, this looks fun. It's called The Lost City. And a great cast in this. Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter, and Brad Pitt. Here's a clip. Miss Sage, I enjoyed your book about the lost city, and I believe you're the one who could help me find its treasure. What is this? Taken? Am I taken? Oh, no. Loretta Sage is missing. I'm going to rescue her. Let's start living dangerously. 
Alan, what are you doing here? We're here to save you. I'm certified CPR. I'm certified CrossFit. I have snacks. Off to them! So Bullock plays an author named Loretta Sage. She writes romance adventure novels set in exotic places. Channing Tatum plays Alan, who is her cover model, and he tries to embody the hero of her series, whose name is Dash. And Radcliffe is the billionaire who wants to find the lost city that she wrote about. So he kidnaps her to help him find it, and then Alan decides to go after her and try to be a real hero. And they get into comic hijinks, and then along comes Brad Pitt for some reason to help them out, and uh, she remarks on how handsome he is, and he makes a wisecrack that his dad was a weatherman, that's why he's handsome. Um, but it looks fun, and it's getting decent reviews. Yeah, it looks like a nice, a nice fun romp, you know, and a, a, a different sort of a buddy movie with a romantic comedy mixed in. Uh, but the thing about Sandra Bullock is, and you wanna, you wanna love her. You wanna think she is who she is on the screen. And in another life, a million years ago, I worked for an entertainment program, and uh, it was 1995. I had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles and interview Sandra Bullock one-on-one for a movie called The Net. I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Net. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a kind of a B-movie, but I was junior reporter, so I got to go out there. And I, I'm sitting across from her, and she you know, had some fame from Speed, and I was starstruck, and I thought that she was a gorgeous woman. And, uh, you know, hi, hi, Sandra. Uh, my name's Andrew. And she goes, it's, it's Sandy. And I thought, oh, this is the greatest day of my life. I can call her Sandy now, which, which I didn't. But she is the genuine article. And, you know, I'd like to see more of her because it seems like she, you know, isn't as active as she used to be. <laughs> Sandy, I've never heard that. It was that's, crazy. No, that's, well, that's nice. And, yeah, it, well, it's, it's funny. Like when you, there are some actors where you can just tell that there are, they have to be nice people off screen. Yeah. Um, and she's always, well, she starred in the movie Miss Congeniality, did she not? <laughs> That's a good, say no more, Miss Congeniality, she is. Hey, uh, switching gears and, you know, it's the Super Bowl of all things movies, the Oscars this weekend. Is this going to be uh, the Oscars that we all need right now, Brad? Well, <laughs> here's the thing. The Oscars, I mean, last year was that weird year where they were under COVID restrictions and it was a super boring ceremony. And the Oscars ratings have, they just, it's like this kind of steady free fall. This does look to be an interesting year because they've got the three hosts, Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina King. I guess they're going to each get an hour to host. Um, they're back in the Dolby Theater with 2,500 people in attendance. They're saying that the, uh, the opening number is going to be a big, 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 big deal. But the problem is the movies. Like, when I look uh. at the Best Picture nominees, I'm just going to rattle them off. Drive My Car, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, Dune, that was a big hit. West Side Story, The Power of the Dog, Licorice Pizza, Belfast, King Richard, Coda. They're all great. I haven't seen, I gotta be also, I'll be honest, I haven't seen any of them. My mm -hmm. co-host Jeff Braun is the guy who likes to get this stuff. But, um, most people have not seen most of these movies. And that's always the problem with the Oscars is like there'll be one movie, uh, like Spider-Man, that's probably made more money than all of these movies combined. Yeah. So, I'm curious to see how it's going to play out. I'll tune in, but um, yeah, I, I don't have much hope for the Oscars uh, long run. I think this is going to become a more niche event. Mm. Well, I think maybe they're you're, they're uh, you know tinkering with it with the three hosts, so at least that'll be different. But you know, in the meantime, a good excuse to get some snacks, I guess, and uh, 
<laughs> lays around the house on Sunday night. So uh, we appreciate uh, your time and uh, checking out The Lost City. That looks like a good one, I think. Um, yeah, it's getting good yeah. reviews, too. Good stuff. Have a, have a great weekend, and thanks for your time, Brett. All right, man. He's Brett McGarry of The Couch Potatoes. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.